and welcome again to the St. Peter Institute podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Marcus Peter, the president of the Institute. And joining me is our regular guest, Tony Powers. Tony is a friend, a good friend. He is a fellow alumnus of Ave Maria University, lives and works with his bride, Christy, and his young son, Jude, in the Archdiocese of Indianapolis. Tony has a mind and a heart for joining the mysteries of Scripture intertextually between Old and New Testament. How are you doing today, Tony? I'm doing real well. How are you, Marcus? Very well, thank you. Very well. And as usual, excited to jump right into one of our episodes. I tend to learn a lot. And the, the I kid you not, the last episode that we did, immediately after that, I spent some time on my knees in prayer and I dug for my baptism certificate. I'm ashamed to admit I couldn't find it. <laughs> and uh, I, I asked my parents when my baptism date was. So now I know it and I know it by heart and I put it in my phone. So I'm, I'm never going <laughs> to forget it. Oh, that's good. <laughs> so today, Tony has done us the great service of wanting to walk us through the mystery of the transfiguration. So what is this transfiguration? Is it the class you take at Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry, <laughs> taught by a cantankerous old woman who apparently turns into a cat? Uh, what <laughs> the wonderful Dame Maggie Smith. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. It was played by Maggie Smith. <laughs> Well, pray tell, Tony, what is the transfiguration? Well, that's uh, that's not quite what we're talking about. Um, the reason I'm even bringing it up is because it's the other time that it was manifestly apparent that Jesus' divinity was on show for, well, not the whole world, but for people to see. Um, but before we go diving into the story of what happened there, as always, there's background information that we need to do to set it up so that we understand what's happening and why it's such a big deal. Um, so, first things first. Mountains are important. Now, anyone that lives anywhere near a mountain is very ready to tell you they're gigantic. And anyone who lives not near mountains is ready to tell you they have no idea what a mountain looks like. <laughs> uh, I, I live in Indiana. Our highest point of elevation is somewhere in the neighborhood of 1,000 feet. We're a relatively flat state. When I was in high school, we went on uh, a trip to upstate New York to go canoeing in the mountains for a week. And oh boy, that was, that was a new adventure. Those are, those are some heights that we don't have here. And we also uh, went to school in Florida. Even flatter than Indiana. <laughs> yeah, high point of something like 700 feet. And even that's like the, the, the county dumpster, right? Yeah, something like that. Uh, but if you go to the Holy Land, there are mountains everywhere. Well, not everywhere, but there are a lot of mountains. There are multiple mountain ranges. And if you're reading through the Bible, you see mountains pop up a lot. There are a lot of times that people go up on mountains and they have experiences. Mountains are very common throughout the Holy Land. Um, there's, well, not a ton of mountains everywhere, but there are a couple mountain ranges uh, that it's very difficult to miss because they're mountains. Uh, and when you're reading through the Old Testament, especially Genesis and Exodus, if you come across a mountain, that's something for you to remember because a mountain is a place where encounters with God happen. See, okay, we have the garden, Adam and Eve walk with God, it's great. And then they fall and they're kicked out of the garden and God and man are no longer walking side by side. There's a distance between us that somehow has to be bridged. 
And in one sense, yes, there's a spiritual distance between us, and that's the whole Jesus story, and we'll get to that. Uh, but there's also the literal no longer walking with God in the garden thing. So what we see in the Old Testament is people go up mountains, and that's where they encounter God. Uh, so one of the first encounters that man has with God in Genesis after the fall uh, is with Noah. And after the flood ends and Noah's ark comes to rest and his family comes out, the first thing that they do when they come out of the ark is they build an altar to God and God makes his covenant with Noah. But where do they do this? They do this on top of a mountain. Now, some translations call it Mount Ararat. Some translations call it the mountains of Ararat. Mount Ararat is a particular peak in Turkey that the Turkish government government doesn't let anyone on in mind of going and climbing Mount Ararat to find the to find Noah's Ark. I'm sorry, but you're not allowed to do that right now. But anyway, so the mountain is where Noah has this encounter with God. And then Genesis 12, we start the story of Abraham. At the time, he's just Abram. And when he first arrives in Canaan, the first thing he does is he builds an altar. But in Genesis 22, this is the big chapter with Abraham's story. 15 and 17 are also big chapters, but 22 is the really big chapter where God tells Abraham that he needs to take Isaac, his only son, who he loves, and he's going to take him to a mountain that God will point out to him. And then he's supposed to offer Isaac as a sacrifice on that mountain. So they go, and once they reach this mountain, Abraham goes to sacrifice Isaac, but God stops him and sends a ram with its horns caught in a thicket to be sacrificed instead. And there's this really, really interesting rabbinic tradition that pops up later on. The, the tradition is that this mountain where Abraham sacrificed Isaac, uh, Mount Moriah, later gets renamed to Mount Zion, which is the mountain that the temple's built on, which is a really, really, really cool parallel that's really, really interesting, but also not what we're going to talk about today. That's a story for another time. And there's another really interesting parallel to that tradition. Uh, the Samaritans thought that Mount Moriah was in Samaria, uh, called Mount Gerizim. And so they built their temple on Mount Gerizim, which they thought was Mount Moriah. Uh, and so when you have the Samaritans and the Jews uh, at the time, the kingdom of Judah, uh, in the Old Testament, in the conflicts of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, when they're fighting against each other about where they're to worship and when you have in the new testament the samaritan um the samaritans asking jesus where they're supposed to worship this is why because they've built temples in two different places and both of them think they built the temple where abraham built his altar that's why that's such a big deal but anyway there's there's another very 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 famous mountain that's more famous than any other mountain in the entirety of the old testament it's yes, it's more famous than Mount Zion um, because Mount Zion just becomes the temple and they stop calling it Mount Zion. The mountain that I'm talking about here, uh, we got to skip a couple generations to get to. Uh, so we have Moses. And when he flees Egypt after killing the taskmaster in uh, Exodus 2, he comes to the land of Midian and he's tending the flock because he's now a shepherd. And he comes to a mountain. And on that mountain, there was a bush that was on fire, but not burning. And this is the burning bush that sets in motion all of the events of the Exodus. 
So, you know, if you watch the Ten Commandments or uh, Prince of Egypt or any of those other Moses movies, this is that story. But it's not just any mountain where he's encountering God here. And note, he's on top of a mountain when he's encountering God. He's encountering God on Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb. What's really frustrating is that both words get used. Both seem to describe the same mountain. Uh, some think that it's two peaks of one mountain. Horeb is one peak, Sinai is the other. Uh, some think that uh, one's the east face, one's the west face. But the agreement is Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, same place. And this is the place where Moses has his first encounter with God in the burning bush. It's also, fast forward several years and several plagues, the place where the Israelites go when they get out of Egypt. It's the first place they go. So they have this whole golden calf incident, this wonderful thing at, uh, in Exodus 32. Um, and the very next chapter, Exodus 33, God says he can no longer walk among them because if he were to, they would all be destroyed. This is not a good thing, right? If God wants to take care of his people, it's a little bit counterproductive for him to destroy them all just by being in their midst. So, actually, cut that out for a second. Um, this is also an interesting parallel to the fall when Adam and Eve sin and God can no longer go among their midst not because he's going to destroy them, but because there is now that distance between them. Now with Israel, after they've made this new covenant with God and then proceeded to break it a month and a half later, uh, he can no longer go among them lest they be destroyed. So we get a description of a new tent that they're going to build so that Moses can talk to God. And, you know, he, he's, he's friends with God. It's all fine. We're good. Uh, but that way God doesn't have to go through Israel and kill all of them uh, so Moses would go into this tent called the tent of meeting and the pillar of cloud that they had been following as the presence of God would come into the tent uh, and then in Exodus 33 chapter 33 verse 11 we get a really interesting comment that God would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend which is a crazy big deal because they're uh, face to, it's not even the way Marcus and I are talking to each other. We're electronically face to face, but we're not physically face to face. And this is something that hasn't happened since the garden. Adam and Eve were the last people to be able to talk to God face to face, and they went and screwed it up for all of humanity. Now Moses has this great gift of being able to speak to God face to face. And in Deuteronomy 34, we hear that it's even a bigger deal than that um, because it says, since then, no prophet has been risen in Israel like Moses, who God knew face to face. So Moses was the first and the last that God spoke to face to face since the fall. Okay, maybe not the last. I mentioned last time there's that prophecy about the prophet in Deuteronomy 18. Um, so Deuteronomy 18 is where all the rules about not consulting with mediums or witches or fortune tellers or all that fun stuff, all that warning against the occult and telling the future comes in. And God says that 
when it becomes necessary for us to know things about the future, he will raise up prophets who will speak with his voice. Uh, now, ordinarily, we see this as a promise for future prophets like Elijah or Nathan or Jeremiah or Malachi. Or, there's a lot of them. Um, one who will be lights. Now, need a prophet like Moses to come among them. Because when they were at the foot of the mountain, they said that they couldn't hear the voice of God or see his fire, lest they die. So we're going to have this new prophet like Moses come up from among the Israelites. Uh, and if this prophet is going to be one like Moses, it means he's going to be one that hasn't been seen in Israel since Moses. One who is going to be able to speak to God face to face like one would a friend that Israel has not seen since Moses. Uh, and so when we, sorry, that's my place. Okay. So uh, the last couple of times that we've talked now, this theme has come up repeatedly is the idea of the new Exodus. And this is another one of those prophecies about that, that with Moses's death, which is what happens at the end of Deuteronomy 34, Moses dies. Uh, with Moses' death, the Exodus basically ends. Joshua leads them across the Jordan River, but that's all that's left to do. They're there. Uh, but the fact that there was still a need for another prophet like Moses shows that they're not done. Even though they've made it into the promised land, they're not completely free. They haven't been set free from all of their enemies. And if you remember talking last time, that one enemy in particular, uh, the very pesky Sin, tends to stick around a little bit. And it's also really interesting that we get this prophecy of another prophet being raised up like Moses, because after Moses dies, we have Joshua, who is Moses' direct successor. Moses literally appoints him his successor. But Joshua isn't a prophet like Moses. He's just the one in charge. And that's another really interesting thing because it also points to the fact that even though there are prophets that will be raised in the future and like Nathan and Elijah and Jeremiah and so on and so on, we're not talking about just an average prophet as average as a prophet can be. The whole idea is that it's not average, but um, we're talking about more than that. We're talking about something greater than merely being able to speak on behalf of God. I say that as if that's not a big deal. That's a really big deal. I don't want to downplay that, but that's not all we're looking for. We're looking for someone who can speak to God face to face. Uh, and when Moses would do this, there was this really interesting effect. So. At the end of Exodus 33, Moses asks God to show him the full glory of his nature. And God says, okay. And so he says that he's going to pass by, but Moses cannot see his face. God is going to cover Moses' face so that Moses doesn't see the face of God, but he can see the back of him. And so Moses is up on Mount Sinai in this cave. And God goes to pass by and covers Moses' face, and Moses sees his back. Well, the back of his glory. I have no idea how to picture that. I've never seen the glory of God. Uh, 
I, I, I don't even know where to begin to just imagine that. But this continues into Exodus 34 when Moses gets the second set of stone tablets. Because this is after he broke the first set. Um, and when he came down the mountain, his face was radiant. And not in the sense that we normally think of where, you know, you have this very beautiful woman we call her radiant. No, no, he was literally glowing. His face was shining light. He had, they had to put a veil over his face because it was too bright for people to look at him. And the only time he could take the veil off of his face was when he went into the tent of meeting to talk to God because there was no one in there with him. His face shone so brightly they couldn't look at him. That's what radiant means. That's, in the fullest sense, literally so bright we can't look. So, that's Moses' wonderful encounters with God and the beautiful radiance of his face that they had to cover because it blinded the people who looked. And Moses' last encounter with God happened on Mount Nebo, and we mentioned that a little bit, um, where Moses got to go up the mountain and he got to see the promised land, but he didn't get to go in because in Numbers he did a thing that God told him not to do. And whole other story. But that's Moses. So now, after we've talked about the greatest of the prophets, the law, literally the giver of the law of Israel, well, the hander on, I guess, considering God gave it to him and he handed it on to them, but the one who gave Israel their law. And we're going to move to the second greatest prophet. His name is Elijah. Now, he doesn't exactly take up a ton of space in the Bible, about half of First Kings and a chapter of Second Kings, and that's really about all he does. But he looms really large in the Jewish imagination. Uh, and we talked about one of the main reasons Elijah is such a big deal last time, uh, because when he comes back, he's going to come bringing the Messiah. That's kind of a big deal. Uh, but in the Jewish understanding, there's a lot more to it. So when Elijah comes back, he's going to have answers to all of the disputed questions of the law. And there are a lot of those. There are 613, I think, individual laws that they're supposed to follow. They have questions on many of them. That's actually part of why they pour out a cup for Elijah during the, uh, the Seder meal. That's, that's a disputed question, and they're hoping Elijah will come and answer the question. <laughs> um, so even though Moses gave them the law, Elijah is the one who's going to come bringing the answers. And a lot of Elijah's most famous stories happen on mountains. His most famous story happens on Mount Carmel, which is the same Mount Carmel uh, that the Carmelite Order and Our Lady of Mount Carmel get their names from. Um, so the story is that Elijah had prophesied previously to King Ahab that no rain would fall in Israel as a punishment for worshiping other gods. Because Israel screwed up again and started worshiping other gods. They're really bad at the whole monotheism thing. Uh, so after three years of no rain, Elijah and Ahab have a confrontation. And so Elijah puts up a challenge that Ahab, <clears throat> Ahab should gather together hundreds of the prophets of Baal, one of the gods that Israel had forsaken the true God for. Uh, and they were going to go up on Mount Carmel for this contest. And each side gets two, or each side gets a bull. Now the prophets of Baal are to prepare the bull and put it on this altar that they'd built on Mount Carmel. 
but they're not allowed to light the sacrifice. Baal himself is supposed to supply the fire. Now, this is actually a really, really, really funny contest when you understand a little bit more of the context. Because not only was Baal one of the false gods that, you know, doesn't exist, um, he was the god of storms. Well, the particular Baal that they were worshipping was the god of storms. Which means that the fact that it hasn't rained for the last three years is a little bit uh, painful because this guy that they're supposed to be sacrificing to is the one who supposedly controls that. And fire coming from heaven? You'd think the god of storms could, you know, throw a bolt of lightning that way, and we'd all be good. So this isn't just my god's real, your god's not. This is your god doesn't have the power you think he does. The few things that you think he controls, he doesn't control even those. It's a really, really powerful story. Uh, and they spend the whole day calling on him and nothing happens. And then it's Elijah's turn. And apparently there had been an altar to God on Mount Carmel that had been torn down. And he rebuilt the altar. And then he dug a trench around the altar. And then he put the wood and the bull on it. And then he called for four large jugs of water to be poured on the altar. Now remember, we're still in the middle of a three-year-long drought. And he wants a lot of water on this altar. So they pour four jugs of water on it. And then they do it again. And then they do it a third time. And there's so much water on this altar that the trench that he dug around it is full. And then Elijah calls upon the Lord. And fire fell from heaven and burned up the sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the soil and even dried up the water in the trench. Everything was consumed by this fire. And then rain returned to Israel later that day. Uh, and while this was a good thing for King Ahab, because, hey, there's rain again, uh, his wife Jezebel is the one that brought Baal to Israel. She was not happy, and she threatened Elijah. So he had to flee the country. And after 40 days of traveling, do you remember what the number 40 is? Hey, uh, number of trial. He comes to a familiar mountain. He comes to Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, where many, many years ago, Moses himself had come. Elijah is the first person and the only person to return to Horeb after Israel got into the promised land. So something big is going to happen here because this is the mountain. It's not just that all mountains are symbolic of an encounter with God. This particular mountain, this is the mountain of the covenant. This is the mountain that Moses met God. This is the mountain that Moses got to look upon the glory of God. And this is the mountain that Elijah is going up. And God comes to Elijah and he says that he's going to pass him by. And so Elijah needs to be prepared to go to the mouth of the cave. And this is another really famous Elijah story. And so there's a great wind that tears the mountains apart and shatters the rocks. But God was not in the wind. And there's a great earthquake and the caves shook and the boulders fell. But God was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was this great fire that burned the mountainside and cast its glow. And Elijah could feel its heat. But God was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was a gentle whisper. And as soon as Elijah heard the whisper, he covered his face and he went, to, he went to the mouth of the cave. And there, Elijah spoke with God. And this is part of the reason that Elijah loomed so large in the Jewish imagination. Elijah is the prophet that was raised up in Israel when all the rest had turned their backs. 
when he's having that conversation with God, one of the things that Elijah calls out is that there's no one in Israel left who is faithful to God. And God calls him on his exaggeration, and that's a whole other thing. Um, but he's the prophet who was raised up when everyone had turned their backs. He's the prophet who had returned to Sinai after Israel finished the Exodus. He's the prophet who could call down the fire of God from heaven and who would eventually be taken up into heaven in a fiery chariot. And he's able to go up the mountain into the presence of God. And we can talk in more detail about messianic prophecy another time, but Elijah is actually one of those fulfillments of the prophecy of Moses. Now, it's not the complete fulfillment, but he is one of them. And this is another reason that Elijah is such a big deal in the Jewish imagination. Because when God promised another prophet like Moses who would come, they look at Elijah and they see he did pretty much everything Moses did. This is another prophet like Moses. And so these two figures are the most important figures in Judaism. On the one hand, you have Moses for fairly obvious reasons. Uh, God sent him to speak on his behalf. Uh, he led the people out of Egypt and into Israel. He made the covenant with the nation. He brought them the law. And on the other hand, you have Elijah, who's a prophet like Moses predicted, who's able to call down the fire of God, able to go into the presence of God without dying, who passes on his spirit to his successor. These are two very important figures. So now we're going to jump forward quite a bit. And we're going to pick up the action uh, just after Peter makes his famous confession. So the very famous story that most Catholics know very well is uh, Jesus in the area of Caesarea Philippi goes to the disciples and says, who do people say that I am? And they give answers. Um, John the Baptist back from the dead, Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the other prophets. And then he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, speaking for all of them, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my father who's in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and the gates of the netherworld shall not prevail against it. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. All that wonderful, fun stuff in Matthew 16. Um, and right after that, that's where we're starting. We're, we're talking right after that, literally about, a well, at the end of that conversation. So after this, Jesus predicts his death to them, and Peter says, uh, Lord, this isn't going to happen. And Jesus responds with, get behind me, Satan. Um, and then he says something very strange. He says, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man come into his kingdom in one gospel or uh, the kingdom of God come in its power is the other one. So the point is, some of the apostles who are with him now are not going to die before they see the kingdom of God return. And there is a whole very lengthy, very large conversation we can have another time with the whole end of the world connection there. But that's not where we're going. We're, we're going to pick up where that happened. About a week later, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John. If you look at uh, Matthew, I think it's six days. Luke says eight. The point is it's about a week later. Um, and actually, there are a lot of people who think this happens during the Feast of Tabernacles or the Festival of Booths. Um, and that's actually very significant. It's a week-long festival, which would explain why the estimate is about a week, because it's during this festival. Um, and 
the rules for it are outlined in Leviticus 23. But basically, the idea is that Israel has to come to Jerusalem and live in tents for a week to remember they, the time that they had to live in tents when God brought them out of Egypt. So this is a time when Israel is very, very explicitly remembering being in the Exodus. That's literally the point of what they're doing. Hey, remember that time y'all had to do this for 40 years? Gee, that's a good thing you don't have to do that anymore, right? Um, so where does he take these three? Well, he takes them up a mountain. Uh, and Luke tells us why he does this. He takes them up to pray. And while he's praying, something strange happens. His appearance, it changes. Um, if you read Mark's account, it's really interesting. You can see the, the author of the Gospel of Mark struggling to find words to put to this. Matthew and Luke are a little bit more eloquent. Um, Luke compares his clothes to a flash of lightning. Matthew says his face shone like the sun. There is this radiance here that we haven't seen since Moses talked to God face to face. And then two people appear with him, and it's Moses and Elijah. So on the very obvious level, we have Moses representing the, the law and Elijah representing the prophets, and we have Jesus here speaking with the law and the prophets who are foretelling his coming and what he's about to go do. Um, but more than just that, these two had direct encounters with God on mountaintops and lived to tell the tale. It wasn't just that the word of God came to them. It's that they actually directly encountered God in his presence. Moses was able to see the glory of God. Elijah was brought out of the cave into the presence of God, though his face was covered. But this time, it's a little bit different. There's no wind. There's no pillar of fire. There's no cloud descending from heaven to cover the mountaintop yet. Instead, Jesus himself begins to shine. And it's happening while he's praying. It's while Jesus is having this conversation with his father up on the mountaintop where encounters with God happen. And he's showing all the signs of one who has been speaking to God face to face. Remember that prophecy in Deuteronomy where there would be another who spoke to God face to face? Yes, Elijah kind of did it, but his face was covered. Jesus is doing it in the fullest sense possible because Jesus isn't just sitting in front of God and talking to him. Jesus is talking to God within himself because he is divine. When Moses and Elijah appear, um, they point to all of these prophecies where in case John the Baptist wasn't enough of a representation of Elijah coming with the spirit of Elijah, here is literal Elijah appearing again, right in front of the Messiah. In case, you know, Jesus coming and speaking to God and speaking on behalf of God and giving them a new law and the Sermon on the Mount wasn't clear enough. Here's Moses talking to him. And here's Jesus shining with the effects of speaking to God face to face that thing that only Moses had done before. And remember what happened a week before this. It's only a week later. Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus says that there are some who will see the kingdom of God before they die. And what are we seeing? 
we are seeing Jesus show forth his divinity, flanked by the personification of the law and the prophets. And the brightness is so radiant that Peter just starts babbling. It's a good thing that you're here. We'll put up three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And that way we can camp out here because this is obviously just basically heaven. Remember, Elijah didn't die. Where did he go? He was caught up to heaven in the whirlwind. And now here he is. We're speaking to him. Well, you're speaking to him. What does that mean? We, that means we have to be in heaven because we're talking to Elijah and Moses, both of whom are dead. Well, both of whom are no longer walking this earth. The radiance of God is showing forth in front of us. This is heaven. Now, thankfully, Peter is saved from the embarrassment of having to be told, no, that's not why I brought you up here. Because it's at this point that the cloud comes down to cover these three. And in the Old Testament, the cloud universally symbolizes God's presence. When the Israelites are leaving Egypt in the Exodus, they follow a pillar of fire by night, but a pillar of cloud by day. And that cloud is the presence of God. When Moses goes up Mount Sinai to speak to God, a cloud covers the top of the mountain so that Israel cannot see Moses speaking to God. When Moses is speaking to God in the tent of meetings, the cloud comes to the tent to speak with Moses. Even on top of the Ark of the Covenant, on the mercy seat, they experience the cloud of God's glory resting on the top of the, on the, top of the Ark. When they dedicate the Temple of Solomon, the temple is filled with a cloud of such radiance that no one inside could see. The cloud is the presence of God. And when this cloud comes down and covers Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, a voice comes from it saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. This, this is the sort of showing forth of God's presence that we haven't seen since the Old Testament. It hasn't been since we had the Ark of the Covenant that God has walked among his people in the form of a cloud. And here we have a cloud coming down, covering Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, the Messiah and the two who foretold him, showing forth the presence of God. And it's not just that Moses and Elijah are forerunners of the Messiah, even though they are. But more than that, Jesus is actually fulfilling their roles. He's completing what they had started. He's perfecting everything they had done. And we'll talk about this more another time, but it becomes most obvious with the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, when Jesus tells them first that the law is not passing away, but it's being fulfilled. And then he takes the law that Moses had given to them and he gives them a new law. And how's it, how does he do it? He says, you have heard it said, and then he gives one of the laws. And then he says, but I say to you. And that in itself is a gigantic bombshell because you know who they heard it from, that first rule? They heard that from Moses. Moses got that from God. Who does this guy think that he is saying that he can supersede the law of Moses? And they even say it at some point in Matthew's gospel towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount. They say, with what authority does he teach? Because it's not just that he's some no-name rabbi from the middle of nowhere that they haven't met before. No, no. This guy is claiming to teach greater than the law of Moses. And then we see him up on the mountain speaking with Moses and Elijah. 
the one who gave the law, the one who has all the answers to all the questions, talking to this one person. And we see he's so much greater than what came before. Jesus fulfills all that they had come and begun. And how does this episode end? It ends when they hear the voice, the three of them, Peter, James, and John, fall face first onto the ground. And they stay there until Jesus taps them and tells them to get up and there's nothing to be afraid of anymore. And then when they go down the mountain, Jesus tells them, don't say anything until I've been raised from the dead. And it's in this conversation that in Matthew 17 that Jesus gets very explicit and tells them, hey, uh, John the Baptist was Elijah who was coming before me. That's why he was here. That's the whole point. But what have they just seen? They saw the radiance of Christ, not because he was a beautiful human, not because he, I don't know, painted his face particularly well that that day. No, they saw the radiance of divinity coming from him. And okay, that's a lot to unpack in itself. That's a really heavy stuff right there. But we're not done yet. Because remember, what was that promise that Jesus made? That they're going to see the kingdom come in its glory. And then Peter, James, and John, they got to see the glory. But that's not quite when we're done. Because what was Christ's ultimate mission? It was to suffer, to die, and to rise for us. And in his infinite wisdom, God made sure to beat us over the head with the symbolism so that we can actually understand what's going on. Uh, And in our human fallibility, we did a great job of missing even the obvious signs. But we have all of these parables that Jesus gives us about the kingdom of God, and they mention something a little bit different than what people tend to think of. Today, when we think of the kingdom of God coming, we think about the end of the world. Uh, But that's not quite what Jesus has in mind. So if you look at Matthew 13, for example, there's a bunch of parables about what the kingdom of God is like. The, there's the hidden treasure in a field. There's the pearl of great price. That the, the kingdom is worth selling all that we have just to be able to have it. And so great, it's important. But it's also the mustard seed that grows into a great tree or a little bit of leaven in dough. This tiny little thing that when tended to and cared for grows into a great tree or a full loaf. And Matthew's gospel in particular is all about the kingdom of God, and we can talk more about the kingdom another time. Um, but the the thing that Jesus is consistently preaching in Matthew's gospel is that the kingdom, the kingdom of God is at hand, or it's coming. But the kingdom of God, as Matthew describes it, is God coming to rule on earth. The arrival of the kingdom of God is the culmination of Jesus' ministry. And this is something that Book of Revelation ties into, too. And when does that happen? It happens on the cross. When he makes the sacrifice for all mankind is when the kingdom of God comes and reigns. And when he rises from the dead, we see that the kingdom of God has conquered death. That God now reigns again. So let's take a second to look a little bit closer at the crucifixion. What's happening? We see Jesus go up a mountain And he's raised up with two men, one on each side. When he's raised, he cries out in a loud voice. And the people think that he's calling to Elijah. 
And then at the great climax of this event, there's a manifestation of God with the earth quaking and the temple veil, tear, temple veil tearing. And it ends with the centurion's confession, truly this man was the son of God. Does this stuff sound familiar? Because it should. Uh, let's go back through and make that a little bit more obvious. Now, there are some things that are different, but there's a lot of parallels. They go up the mountain. And what is the mountain? The mountain's the place that we encounter God. And he gets to the top of the mountain. He is raised to be the center of attention with two men, one on each side. And Dismas and Gestas are no Moses and Elijah. But he's still there with two men, which John had seen before. Because remember, John's at the foot of the cross. And at the culmination of all of this, when he reaches the high point of what he's doing, we see another manifestation of his divinity. But this time, it's not a light shining through him. It's the opposite. The sun goes dark. The earth shakes. And when his side is pierced, we have an identification of his divinity. Truly, this man is the son of God. Yes, things have been flipped on their head a little bit. Things have been changed a little bit because it is a different event. But the connection between the two has to be seen. When they were on the mountain for the transfiguration, they saw the glory of the kingdom of God. And now on the hill of the cross, they see the kingdom come. And even though it wasn't what they had expected, even though it wasn't the great glorification of God they had expected, this is the moment that Christ's glory is manifested. And this manifestation of Christ's glory reaches its climax at the resurrection. When he rises from the dead and defeats the death that he just suffered. He culminates the project of bringing the kingdom of God to earth with his resurrection. But the entry of the kingdom began, well, it began way back with his birth, but it began with his passion, with its parallels to when John saw the glory of God shining before him. Okay, that was nothing short of astounding. That, that truly was nothing short of astounding. Uh, there's a, there, there really is a lot that can be said pertaining to uh, the, the significance of mountains just in terms of covenant ratification alone and, and how significant that is in terms of God not being able to come down and walk with us on an equal plane. So we have to ascend to him on a physical level as well as a spiritual level. Anyone wants to write a book, there's a whole topic right there. <laughs> <laughs> there actually is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that would make for an excellent book. Uh, another book would be just simply on the role of Elijah in the Old and New Testament. And, and all of that is manifest all the way until the crucifixion. I had a ton of questions, but now I'm, I, I'm just floored. <laughs> no, I, I really am. I, I had a ton of questions, but now I'm just floored. I, I will point this out. Even even in the book of Ezekiel, when, when when we read early on when God manifests himself, at the sight of God's glory and, and at the sight of a cloud, man falls prostrate. In fact, uh, some, some translations argue that, uh, some commentators argue that uh, Ezekiel, upon beholding the, beholding the face of God, died 
and God resurrected him. And we see this happen multiple times. You know, then he resurrects, he sees God, he dies again. And, and, and it's astounding that Peter, James, and John see the glory of God manifest in the person of Christ. And, and it's veiled enough that they don't die. It's, it's just veiled enough that they don't die. So I guess it's safe to say Jesus knew he was God, huh? Yeah, there is. I, I know there are people out there that try to say that Jesus learned he was God or he became God. Or, I Honestly, the more you dig into the Old Testament, the more you dig into the Gospels, the more you understand what's happening, there's no way. There's no way. Yeah, yeah, there's, yeah, no, there's no way. In fact, they're, they're actually Catholic commentators. Uh, oh, right, I, I, a name is coming to mind, but I don't want to throw him out. You know what? Fine, Father Thomas Weinandy. He's a he's a Capuchin uh, Thomistic scholar and scripture scholar. Uh, he argues that Jesus didn't have the beatific vision in his human form. He had he coined his own term that Jesus had the filial vision. That that would connote some kind of division in the in the divine essence. So we don't want to go there. Uh, I, I do have a, I, I do, however, want to uh, point out this this one small similarity that the Gospel of John says, "And he became man and tabernacled amongst us." And it just so happens that the transfiguration takes place in the feast of the tabernacles, and the way in which Christ was tabernacled amongst us was in his human form. And he uses the tabernacle of his human form to shield the fullness of his glory from those three who would have died otherwise. And their response to this is, hey, let's build three tabernacles. There's a lot of tabernacling going on here, and, and that itself will make another article or book. But, but my goodness, I truly am flawed. Every question that I had, I am blown away by the radiance of this doctrine pardon the <laughs> horrible pun yeah uh yeah I, I don't even have any wow just wow tr tr truly honestly just wow uh yeah no let's let's end there i i, I was gonna <laughs> ask, i was gonna ask you for for closing remarks i'm like i don't know how you're gonna top this Yeah, no, no. Uh, yeah, I honestly, I don't. This is what it's all about. That's really all I got. Like, if people are disappointed with what Christ did, then they misunderstand what he came to do. Oh, but you know, Christ was just a good moral teacher, right? I'm sorry. Christian charity, Christian charity, <laughs> Christian charity. Oh. Well, thank you very much for your time, Tony, as usual. Uh, th this this truly has blown me away. Uh, more often than not, I'm very intellectually engaged, but this was this this was quite frankly astounding. This and your and, and the baptism talk, both of these have they're flooring me in different ways. I am quite frankly blown away by, by the sheer magnificence of of what's going on here. And again, pardon the pun. I just <laughs> for want of better terms. So uh, for you listeners, if, if this is blowing you away as much as it's blown me away, 
uh, by all means, pick up Matthew chapter 17. Actually, honestly, it spills over from the later part of 16 onwards and read. And if you have any questions or even insights, feel free to write to us. As usual, the St. Peter Institute link will be in the description. Uh, we've been talking with Tony Powers, our guest, and I want to thank you all for joining us on our episode. We hope to have you join us for future episodes on this podcast. Until next time, I'm Marcus Peter, the president of the Institute, St. Peter Institute for Scripture and Evangelization. God bless you and keep you always. Thank you.